you have a Bible, why don't you turn to John chapter one, or your phone, or if not, don't worry, I think it's gonna come up on all of the screens around the room. So this is from John one, starting at verse 29. It says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was so that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Do you know how amazing your salvation is? That's what this passage leaves me thinking every time I read it. Do I know? Like, really, really know how amazing it is. And that is, we're going to jump straight in. That's the first question of two that I'd love us to explore together this afternoon. Do you know how amazing your salvation is? The passage, we just read another translation of the passage says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, some of you may be well-versed with the presence of lambs in the Bible. Um, some of you may be thinking, why are Christians always harping on about lambs? It's a bit weird. <laughs> and, and that's fair, uh, we do. But I'm going to take us through a whistle-stop tour through the Bible of what I could like to call the journey of the lambs. Um, because it is one of the most ongoing present images in the Bible. And if you haven't seen it before, then I'd love to show you it now. Because not only is it super important, but it's also just a pure wonder. At, at its bare minimum, it shows just how much of an epic storyteller God is. But it's also got so much more going on for it for that. So we're going to rewind way, way back in time to a story about some brothers called Cain and Abel. This is right back in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 4. And it's a short and it's a brutal story um, of two brothers where... Uh, the brother Cain is essentially just quite insecure and jealous and decided to lure his other brother Abel out into a field and kill him in the hope that would make everything better. Really good life choices there. But <laughs> just before this tragedy happens, both the brothers bring an offering to God. Cain brought God some fruit or some vegetables and Abel brought God a lamb. And we're told in this story that Abel's offering was more pleasing to God. And so we see right here at the beginning of the Bible that the offering of a lamb led to God's acceptance of man. Then flash forward a few generations. We are now in the mighty land of Egypt. This might be a slightly more well-known story to you, particularly if you've seen the epic movie or musical The Prince of Egypt. If you haven't, 10 out of 10 recommend. It's a corker. To bring us up to speed in what's happening here. 
We're in Egypt. God's people are being kept as slaves, and it's gotten really, really bad. So God sends his servant Moses into Egypt as a rescuer to God's people. And at this point in the story, Moses has been pleading with Pharaoh of Egypt to let God's people go. But Pharaoh's heart was cold. Even though God sent plague after plague after plague, Pharaoh still wouldn't budge. So having given Pharaoh numerous chances and seeing that his heart was too cold and too hard to ever change, God sends a final plague. He plagues the Egyptians with the very thing that they did to God's people years before, the death of every firstborn. And this is where the lamb enters. So God instructed Moses to tell his people, if you want to be protected and rescued from the spirit of death that is gonna sweep through the land and kill every firstborn, if you want to be rescued from that, then you need to go and sacrifice a year old lamb that has no defect and take a branch of hyssop and dip it in its blood and wipe it over the sides and the top of your door frame. And then you need to cook that lamb, roast that lamb and eat it with some herbs and bread. And this, what was then became known as the Passover meal, which is something that you might have heard before. And that was because it was the night that God passed over the households and the door frames of those that had covered them with lamb's blood so that this spirit of death and this destructive plague would not harm them. And God's people were then instructed to celebrate this meal every day for many years to come. And they did. And they were doing that even in Jesus' time. But we will get to that in a minute. So here we are in Egypt and we're introduced to the Passover lamb. And that was a lamb that led God's people to freedom and to rescue. So we've seen a lamb lead to acceptance. We see this lamb lead to freedom and rescue. And then moving ahead, just a few more chapters. The the same people, the people we've just seen be rescued from Egypt are now in the desert. And they're trying to find a, a new home, a new land to live in and a new law to live by. And so God gives them a new instruction. And he instructs them to sacrifice a lamb to him twice a day, every day. And it's quite a lot of lambs. Quite a lot of effort. Um, But he asked them to sacrifice once in the morning and once in the evening. Again, a year old lamb without any defects. So this would be a perfect, pleasing sacrifice to God. And God says that if they do that, then he will meet them there and he will speak to them and he will dwell with the people. So they offered a lamb in the morning to start the day with the Lord and a lamb in the evening to be forgiven, to be set right before God again and end the day with him. And so here we see a lamb that leads to God's provision and presence. And then we get to our passage here that Jodie beautifully read for us. Many, many, many years later, another lamb is identified, but this time it isn't a literal lamb, but a man. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And hopefully from our whistle-stop tour just now, we can understand a little bit better what everyone present would have been thinking in this moment. All the Jews knew full well what John the Baptist was saying. They were well acquainted with lamb sacrifices and offerings to God. This was a bold and a loaded statement from John because in other words, he was saying, behold, 
Jesus, the ultimate, once and for all, perfect sacrifice, here to set us all free from our evil for good. Breaking the curse of generations of God's people who continue to be so warped by their evilness that they turned away from him again and again and they had to come back to him again and again and make sacrifices morning and night for generations just to be close to him. And now God has sent us one final lamb, the most precious lamb, the most perfect lamb, his lamb, his son, Jesus He's the lamb of all lambs, the one that would lead to God's guaranteed acceptance, freedom, rescue, provision, and presence for all who believes in him. But this lamb would also lead to victory, ultimate, complete, final victory over evil, over the cycles of sin, over death itself. There had never been a lamb like it, and there never will be another one like it. And he might not have been a year old male, but Jesus was 100% without defect. He lived a perfect life. He had no blemishes. He was as pure and as spotless as they came. In the Passover story in Exodus, God instructed that it must be a lamb whose bones had not been broken. And when Jesus was dying on the cross, the author of John tells us how the soldiers would normally break the legs of those being crucified to speed up the process, but they didn't break Jesus's legs. He was an unblemished lamb. And for the particular out there, you might be asking, why a lamb? That's a good question. Um, a lamb symbolizes gentleness and purity and innocence. Three of the many things that Jesus exudes. He wasn't the great mighty warrior that everyone was expecting the coming Messiah to be. He was better. He was unexpected. His lambness was powerfully humbling. The book of Isaiah prophesied this about him. In Isaiah 53, 53, it says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And we see that's true in the book of John 2. When Jesus was arrested, he went peacefully when accused under trial, he didn't try to acquit himself. He didn't argue back. He didn't try to convince anyone not to do it. He kept his mouth shut as our sin and our mess and our fall led him like a lamb to the slaughter. And because he loves you, because he loves me, and that is a deep personal love, by the way. He didn't just do it for the general salvation's sake, but for every one of God's children who know him by name. And that's also what's radical about this passage because it's the first time that we see that Jesus has come for everyone. It's not just for the sins of the Jews, but for the sins of the world. And so because he loved us, he went to an altar of sacrifice as an offering to God, our offering to God. This is the truest picture of something called atonement. The most perfect being there's ever been took our place on the cross because we can't forget that part. He didn't just do us a favor and make it possible for, God, for us to come to God without all the rituals and sacrifices and stuff. He actually took our place on what should have been our road to complete death and destruction. 
I work quite well with analogies because they help me to make sense of things. And every time I think of this, I'm not trying to undermine what Jesus did, but every time I think of this, I often think of the reaping scene from the Hunger Games. Um, And if you're not familiar with that, the Hunger Games is like a dystopian, futuristic novel. And there's this, this moment in the book where all of the villages gather in their own villages uh, with the people around them. And they hear who is going to be nominated to go into something called the Hunger Games arena, where people have to fight for their life and only one person can come out alive. And in this scene, out of the bowl of names comes out of a young girl called Primrose. And she was terrified and weak and helpless. And she screams and cries when her name's picked out, knowing that there is no chance of her coming out of that place alive. And so in that moment, her older, uh, her older sister Katniss runs forward without hesitation and shouts, I volunteer as tribute. And she takes her sister's place and actually goes on to tear down the whole system of evil that has infected all the villages. But our names were always meant to be picked out of the bowl. We were always destined for death. And we were always going to be too weak and too helpless to save ourselves. But God had always planned to volunteer as tribute. It wasn't Jesus' deserved fate, but he volunteered to do it. Because as well as being fully God, he was fully human and he had the capacity and the ability to make decisions that went against the Father and grieved the Father, but he didn't do it because he was perfect and because he loved the Father and he loved us, so he voluntarily went to his slaughter for us. And as he did so, and he hung on that awful, horrific cross, he smeared his blood over the door frames of our lives once and for all never to be wiped away, so that the spirit of death would pass over us, the complete and final atonement for our sins. Even back in Exodus, it was always leading to the cross, as that blood was smeared on either side of the doorframe and over the top of it. The lamb was there, the shape of the cross was there. The promise of a greater rescue and freedom was being woven into the story, one where we wouldn't have to keep making sacrifices and offerings, but one where it was a done deal for all who believed in God. An undeserved gift of eternal protection and complete purification. Why? Because God loves you unconditionally and to a degree you actually will just never be able to fathom. He loves you. He forgives you by taking on all of your sin and battling down to the depths of hell to conquer death so that you can eternally live with him. What kind of God does that? Who does that? Tell me if any other great God or powerful leader that has gone before who would do that. Because no one is capable of, the, of love that big and grace that ridiculously abundant other than our God, than the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't stop there. Hallelujah. It's not the end of the story because not only does Jesus go down to the depths of hell to fight darkness, but he overcomes and he raises back to life. He rises back to life. And guys, this is insane stuff. He rose from the dead, which means he can raise us from the dead. And he's conquering over death means that it wasn't, he wasn't a one-off sacrifice like all the other lambs. He is an ongoing sacrifice that will never run out. He did it. He holds the victory. 
which is why we've been made completely holy and blameless in God's sight, because we are always covered by the blood of the lamb. We are always covered by God's grace. His forgiveness is always extended to us when we repent, because Jesus' sacrifice can't be undone. And his resurrection means evil has no hold of us anymore. Your salvation is phenomenal. Utterly, utterly phenomenal. It's not something that is just a wonder when you first become a Christian. It's something that should blow our minds and take our breaths away every single day. Jesus is the only hope in a world that claims that we can save ourselves. So now we've been reminded of how amazing our salvation is. We have to ask ourselves, do we live like our salvation is amazing. And I'll be the first to put my hand up and say, I don't. <laughs> Do you know what I've preached more about recently than this amazing salvation? Um, and that's donuts, specifically Pippin donuts, which I will take this moment to say are the best donuts I've ever had. But I've been talking about them as though I've discovered the best thing I've ever found or experienced or tasted. And they're great, but they're not, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, great. And then sometimes I get a little bit more on the right lines and I'll absolutely rave about some great sermon series I'm listening to or some great Christian book I'm reading or something like the TV show The Chosen that I'm watching. And I'll do that with a genuine heart because... Those things do point me towards Jesus. But I seem to pour a lot of energy and passion into pointing people towards the things that will point them towards Jesus rather than just pointing them towards Jesus himself. And I long for the day where I have my like Christmas Day Scrooge moment. I've kind of been through the journey and, and had God search my heart and my heart catches up to where I'm at now. And I and I'll know and have experienced God, and I'll wake up from my slumber, and I'll fling wide the windows, and I'll point to the little boy in the snow and say, you boy, salvation that comes from Jesus Christ is the most incredible part of my life. But I'm not even close to that sometimes. I work for a church. Do you know how easy it is for me to start conversations about Jesus? Pretty much the second question anyone will ask you after what is your name is what do you do? And I basically have an open door to Jesus boasting within like a minute of meeting people for the first time. But what I seem to be really good at is talking about how working with kids is really rewarding, but it's quite tiring sometimes. But it's really great, but it's quite tiring. How lame is that? Like it's lame because it's all about me. And it makes much of what I do rather than who I do it for. And that literally couldn't be more opposite of the mindset and the heart posture and the life message of John the Baptist, who's the guy saying all of this stuff in our passage from today. And it's a real joy to be speaking about him because the last few months I've been totally fascinated with the person of John the Baptist to the point I think I've, I've bumped him up to second on the list of Bible greats I'm excited to meet in eternity after Jesus. Why? Because I wholeheartedly believe, other than Jesus, he is one of, if not the best example to us in the New Testament of how to live a sold out life for God. And he barely features in the Gospels. He's like Fontaine in Les Mis, a very dramatic, powerful starting protagonist, but dead basically before the story even begins. But he has such an impact. It's amazing. And here we have Crazy John, which is what I like to call him because he was a bit out there 
living this completely unashamed life in line with God. And we've gotta learn from him too. We've gotta live lives that are completely surrendered and utterly devoted to glorifying Jesus. John got it. And I often feel like we still don't get it. He gave it all. He knew he could get arrested. He knew he could get killed. He knew people wouldn't like it and he knew he would get shunned for it. Do you know what he didn't know? Who the Messiah actually was. That's what it says in there. Didn't know who he would be. Jesus was related to him and he didn't know Jesus was the son of God until the moment God baptized him in the spirit and it rested on him as it said in the passage. Jesus was his cousin and he didn't know it but it didn't matter to John because John knew that God would be faithful and reveal it to him in time. So in faith, he committed his whole self to the Lord, baptizing and waiting for the Messiah to come because he knew that what had been asked of him, and so he did it. John the Baptist knew that the call on his life was to put his life to the side and make sure everything he did pointed towards Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. And we're not exempt from that. John pointed to Jesus and Jesus pointed to the Father. So our lives should point to the Holy Trinity. We should be human signposts pointing to Jesus in everything that we do, in the way we love our neighbours, in the way we love strangers, in our workplaces, in our hobbies, in our schools and universities, even in our talents and our gifts. They should all speak of God's great grace and love and sacrifice for us. We need to walk around as people who are utterly, utterly convicted that the salvation we have in Jesus is the best part about our lives and is the best truth that we behold. Not because it's the right thing to do or probably a good idea, but because it is the actual truth. In the passage, John explains, I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. That was his complete focus. He's basically saying here, I did all that I've done so far so that the Jews might know when their saviour comes. And how did he know to do that? Verse 33, I myself didn't know him, but the one who sent me to baptise water told me. He knew whose he was and whose voice to listen to. He didn't place greater priority on his reputation or being well-liked or being rich or being successful. He knew that the sole purpose for him being born was to be the one who went ahead of Jesus and made a way for his arrival, letting people know the Messiah is coming. And his salvation hadn't even happened yet. The lamb hadn't been sacrificed yet. And he already knew and believed that this was the most amazing part of his life. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. He got it. And I don't know about you, but I want to get it like that. I want to live a life that says, there's a man called Jesus who's coming back at some point. And so we're making a way for you to know him now, to know his great salvation now, to know his forgiveness and grace now, to know his unconditional love for you now, so that when he comes back, you're ready. So that when he comes back, you'll fall on your face and weep with joy because you've been reunited with your first love. And to do that, guys, we need to be family. We need to spur each other on to behold the Lamb of God together. We all know life gets hard and dark and dry sometimes and it isn't always easy to live like salvation in Jesus is the best thing ever. So we need each other. We need solid 
community in Christ to help open each other's eyes when we lose sight of this. We need to pray with each other and champion each other and worship together and open God's word together and be saturated in his goodness and his presence as much as we can. And we need to pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us. Because we can go through all the practical hows of how to live a sold out life for Jesus we want, but the only one that helps us out with any of those things is being people who are filled with, know and listen to the Holy Spirit. But Jesus did give us two incredible, sacred, special and important things that we can do to draw close to him, and that is baptism and communion. We see in this story that he baptized with the Holy Spirit and he wants us to keep doing this. So if you haven't been baptized before, this is a great chance to be thinking about that now. He, we get baptized as a way of saying we die to the old life going down in the water and we come up out of the water into the new one. And both baptism and communion connect us with this new life and remind us that the power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that lives in us now that can deal with our mess and keep us close to Jesus. We can take communion and be connected to the blood of the Lamb who is forever marked on our doorways of life. And we will take communion in a moment and take a solemn moment to remember that Jesus, given his body and his blood for us, is the most heartbreakingly beautiful sacrifice anyone ever can or ever will make for you. Jesus is the only hope in a world that claims we can save ourselves. And so if it's okay with you, we're just gonna take a moment to think about that and respond to that. I'd love you to stand with me. I'm gonna pray over you before we take communion together. So however you like to focus on, on God and not be distracted, if you wanna close your eyes, you're welcome to that. If you wanna hold your hands out as a, as a physical way of saying, yep, God, I'm, I'm here and I'm waiting for you, then you're so welcome to do that. I'm just gonna pray for us, but just ask first, Holy Spirit, would you come now? We just wanna wait on you and, and receive you, Lord. Would you make your presence known to us?